Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa for episode number six of School of Coin. Today, Eddie and I are going to cover a super important element of Bitcoin, uh, which is wallets. Current Moscow time is 16.03 at 7.08655. And as a reminder, the Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code on our homepage at bitcoinstoa.com. And you can also stream sats using something like the Breeze app, which has a badass podcast feature. And I think at the end of the day, one of the best ways of supporting this project is simply by sharing it with others who might be curious about Bitcoin. Uh, if you find the content valuable, share it with others. And the more people we can get understanding and learning about Bitcoin, um, the closer we are to a Bitcoin world. So with that said, let's dive into today's topic, which is wallets. And I think maybe a good thing to start initially is that the objective of this episode is to give a broad and shallow overview of wallets because it is a very busy space. There's a lot of things to know. You don't have to know everything right away. Um, but we're not necessarily going to get deep into the weeds of specific elements today. We're actually planning to do an entire show with multiple episodes completely devoted to wallets, uh, where, you know, for example, we can interview the actual creators of wallets and ask them, you know, why did you create this? What are you optimizing this for? Who's this wallet for? And we can also talk in depth about different features. Um, some of the more I guess, complex features like coin joins or what Tor is and all that kind of stuff. But today we're going to keep it simple. And I think a good place to start is with the fundamental question, what is a wallet? What problems do wallets solve? Why do they exist? So Eddie, when someone comes up to you and says, what is a wallet? Or when you instruct someone on starting by getting, um, obtaining a Bitcoin wallet, what's kind of your high level, simple description for them? And then maybe we can just riff on what is a wallet before we get into different elements of wallets. Cool. Yeah, I'm planning on giving a better definition than the last time you asked me. I think I, I hiccuped a little bit. But I think if I was going to be telling somebody about a Bitcoin wallet, I would be explaining to them that it allows you to store and send and receive Bitcoin. And so it allows you, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way for you to interact. It's the only way for you to interact with the Bitcoin world and ecosystem. And essentially it allows you to do those three things very simply, you know, store or hodl, send or send to others and receive or, or receive Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a good definition. And I think it's, you know, wallets are important because they are actually the piece of software that allows us to interact with the protocol right? That is how we actually communicate with the Bitcoin network and broadcast transactions or receive transactions. So wallets are actually really important. And I think the word wallet, most people will recognize from like the physical wallet, right? Whether people carry those or not, now that we have, you know, credit cards on our phones, I don't know, but I still use a wallet, although it's much smaller than it used to be. And that physical wallet was a, uh, basically like a piece of clothing that I put my money into that I kept on me. And I think that I think that metaphor has a good place. It's, it's hard to bridge that sometimes because that's a physical wallet. Uh, although there are physical Bitcoin wallets, it's a digital, uh, essentially it's a digital concept. So that's kind of hard for people to wrap their heads around. But what I really like about the metaphor of uh, a traditional wallet is that it protects, before credit cards, they used to protect your cash. And Bitcoin being a bearer instrument has a good metaphor to that in that if someone steals your wallet, no one's coming to the rescue uh, if you can't find the person who stole it. And even if you can, if you can't reclaim that from them, your wallet's gone. And so securing your wallet becomes really important. And I think the one differentiator is that a wallet doesn't just hold your physical money. Bitcoin, your Bitcoins are everywhere and nowhere at the same time, right? They are not in any physical location. What you keep custody of is the private keys 
to access your Bitcoin, which are, like I said, everywhere and nowhere at the same time, which is hard to, for people to wrap their head around. But the keys, the private keys are what allows you to send Bitcoin to someone. Uh, your, your public address is what allows you to give, you, uh, give someone a code so that they can send you Bitcoin. So yeah, I think you said it well, where it's like what allows you to store, send and receive Bitcoin. It's your touch point with the protocol. It's what allows you to interact with Bitcoin. Yeah, I also um, think that you had a really good point there, um, Nick, is that like, you know, one of the harder things to understand is like, what is this wallet? It, it's not even a physical thing that I can touch, um, you know, and what is it holding exactly? And you explained it pretty well that, um, you know, I think like relating it to people that it's, it's like a container and it's able to hold things, you know, like I was looking for a lot of definitions, like basic definitions of wallet. And it all really pertains to like the physical, you know, a bifold or something like that, that you can hold on to. But another definition of wallet is a container. And I think that that is um, kind of like exactly like what you're explaining. It's essentially a place to hold these keys and uh, securely hold the keys of Bitcoin. Yeah. And I've even heard good metaphors about keychains because it's a, it's almost like a keychain more so than a wallet. Cause you have all, you can have multiple keys and this is like a, a almost like an O-ring that holds all your keys, which, you know, the hardest part for people to get over is that's not physical most of the time, <laughs> although they have hardware physical wallets, So it just gets really confusing. But at the end of the day, your wallet is what secures your private keys. Um, and I'll have a go at this cause I've been trying to work through this metaphor and I don't know how clunky it is still, but Think of a wallet as a digital bank of lockers. So if you go to a train station, they'll sometimes have lockers that you can rent. You put it, you put money in, you put a pin in, and you have that locker for a set period of time. So creating a wallet is like creating a digital bank of lockers that you can create to store your wealth. Each of those lockers has a little slot that allows someone to put something into the locker, but they don't, but they require a key in order to open the locker and take it out. And you can create a master key for all those lockers. So say you create a bank of 20 digital lockers. You have the master key to open those lockers. You can give the address of the number of those lockers to individuals who can then send money to those lockers. Um, and you can even customize, like maybe you need two keys to open the lockers. There's two keyholes that have to be turned at the same time for you to open those lockers. And so your wallet is like that digital bank of lockers. Um, where other people can put things in, but only if you have the keys, can you take things out and keys are essentially random strings of letters and numbers that only, you know, that no one can guess based on the probability of guessing a string of numbers. Um, and that's sort of a good way. I, I feel like I'm trying to work out that description. Cause I think people can, it's a way to bridge the physical with, um, the digital to give kind of like a metaphor. So, um, yeah. And I think the whole idea that these lockers are completely programmable where you can determine how many keys you need to open them, what keys open, which lockers is kind of cool, but it can also be intimidating. And so when we look at this, there's many wallets to choose from. You have hardware, software, metal, paper. Each of these wallets has different trade-offs. I think the really key thing is to anchor down on for everyone is that holding your own private keys is very important. Uh, if you're not holding your keys, you don't actually own any Bitcoin. Uh, you just basically own an IOU for Bitcoin and are hoping that the person that that IOU is with isn't going to steal your Bitcoin, lose your Bitcoin, and that you can obtain your Bitcoin when you want it. And there's a lot of risk there associated with letting someone else hold your keys. So not your keys, not your coins. Um, I think everyone should try and work towards 
non-custodial wallets and stay away from paper wallets unless you're really advanced. Because I think I've heard of some people making mistakes there and it kind of sucks when you lose Bitcoins because no one's going to bail you out. Full responsibility is yours. Um, and so another key point, I think, to, to put in here before we get into like individual things, like first thing we'll talk about is custodial versus non-custodial, is that your wallet strategy is... Um, it's best to start out your wallet strategy simple with just a little bit of Bitcoin and to kind of get used to how this works. And the larger amount of your wealth you have in Bitcoin, um, the more complexity you require in sort of your wallet strategy, right? Even to the point of going like, okay, well, if something happened to you, how do your heirs access your wallets, right? How do they recover those wallets? And that becomes questions you start to ask yourself when a significant amount of Bitcoin is stored in those wallets. Um, and so I think... I think we're going to cover a bunch of different elements from a high level, but just know that the more wealth you have, the more time you have to spend determining what the best wallet strategy is for you. And hopefully by the end of this episode, uh, you have a little bit of clarity as to, okay, I know what's right for me at this point, And I'm just going to start to familiarize myself with, um, with the different forms of wallets. So first point, let's talk about custodial versus non-custodial. If someone asks you, what's the difference between a custodial wallet and a non-custodial one? Um, what do you tell them? Well, uh, first, I would probably have to read the definition of custodial. Uh, I could probably like guess it, but really, it's like think about um, think about like when you were a kid and, and you were making money, but you didn't actually like hold the money in your pocket. Like if I was to mow a couple lawns when I was younger and then uh, make five bucks a lawn, my my dad or my mom would be holding in custody my money um, and in, in in a wallet. And so that would be a custodial wallet, you know, per se for Bitcoin. If I earned Bitcoin and then they were holding it for me, um, then in their wallet, then that is a custodial wallet. A non-custodial wallet would be essentially, you know, exactly what Nick and I are talking about, taking full uh, sole control of your private keys. And so um, that that comes with a lot of responsibility. And like Nick says, it, it, it just... It, it is a personal decision and it comes with a lot of trade-offs and a lot of, uh, you know, I think you had a really good point too. And I was listening to, I was reading a tweet by the Bitcoin rabbi um, on Twitter a few days ago, actually, which is, which is pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Um, and I wanted to bring it up just for, just for an idea, you know, not just kind of a framework because um, as Bitcoin grows, you know, you could have a small amount of Bitcoin in a wallet and it's like, you know, what, what types of storage do you want to have it in? And, and I think, you know, depending on how much wealth you're storing in Bitcoin, there, there's a lot of different options for you. And so we hope to be able to bring to light some of the most important or some of the most um, valuable options uh, and some of the ones that we do use personally. So, yeah. Really good point. I think everyone has to determine their own strategy, right? And it's like we take this approach with health with TFC, uh, where we don't want to tell you what you should do with your health because we don't actually know. We don't know you. We don't know what your lifestyle is like. But if we give you an understanding of the basic principles, you're then in a position to make an informed choice, the best choice for you at that point in time. And I think this is the goal today is outline some of the fundamental term terminology and principles of like, why would you choose uh, you know, what's the difference between hot and cold wallet? What is their use cases? How does this apply to me? So I think by understanding at a broad level, some of these definitions, people become able to make wise choices for themselves to create a strategy for them at that point in time. And the point in time part is really important, right? Because you might put a hundred bucks in Bitcoin and deem that as a small amount, right? 
But what if in five years, that's like $5,000? That's a much bigger amount. You probably require a deeper strategy on how to secure that Bitcoin. And yeah, I think you did a perfect job describing custodial, non-custodial. I mean, a custodian is when you is someone who is entrusted with the responsibility of holding property for you. So in terms of Bitcoin, you're entrusting a custodian to safely hold your private keys. Now, there's counterparty risk there, right? And there's always the the next part is we'll get into trade-offs, but like the more easy and convenient something is, typically you're sacrificing security and privacy for that convenience. So there's always that trade-off um, in every decision you make. And I think the counterparty risk with that is like, okay, say you have a custodial wallet with Coinbase. You go on Coinbase, you go on an exchange, you buy Bitcoin, they're holding it for you. It's a custodial wallet. You don't hold the private keys. You don't hold a recovery seed. So essentially Coinbase has allocated a certain wallet as being owned by Eddie. Now, Coinbase can not give you your Bitcoin. Coinbase can get hacked and have your Bitcoin stolen. Uh, Coinbase can make it really hard for you to get that Bitcoin off there into your own wallet. So those are the counterparty risk elements. Now, with that said, obviously, Coinbase, big company, they probably have good frameworks in place to keep things safe, but there is always a risk. When you're non-custodial, like you said, you're taking full responsibility. And so there are still risks, right? You can still have your Bitcoin stolen. Um, if you're not taking good care of it. So it is a lot of responsibility, especially if you have a good amount of wealth there, but you don't have the counterparty risk of letting that fate be determined by someone else. And I think that's important. And so everyone I think should try and go, there's nothing wrong with using a custodial wallet initially, especially if it's a small amount, but everyone should try and navigate towards the spectrum of being more sovereign, of going non-custodial, especially with the significant, uh, the, the wallets that are storing a significant amount of wealth. And so let's talk about just trade-offs, convenience and security. The more convenient something is, the less secure and the less private it likely is. Um, and so I think beware that the, the easiest way to store your wealth may not be the most secure way. And I think that that trade-off spectrum is, is really good to kind of encapsulate wallets. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree. I really like my notes for, for trade-offs. Um, you know, in terms of convenience versus versus security, it's really like, you know, what are you what are you going to be doing with the Bitcoin and make that choice for yourself? Like, when is it OK to trade that convenience? Let's say if you, um, you know, in, in any in any type of scenario, if you were going to need your Bitcoin to be more liquid um, and say, ha you know, end up selling your Bitcoin, then keep it on an exchange if you want to do that. But if you are looking to um, hang on to it long term, then then you know possibly consider um, non-custodial wallets and, and and other options and, and such. But um, really, it's a personal choice. And like Nick said, if if it's a smaller amount of Bitcoin and, and if it's something that you feel uh, comfortable leaving on an exchange where um, it's, it's custodial. You are not managing, uh, that Bitcoin, you know, all yourself, then, then do it. But it is a, it is a personal decision. And, you know, I would not recommend, um, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket in terms of, uh, putting it all into a, 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 a custodial wallet. <laughs> yeah. It really does depend what's at stake. Like is your life's yeah. wealth at stake? Well, you should probably, it's probably in your best interest <laughs> to gain some, some understanding to take responsibility for that. Um, you know, that got me thinking of sort of my mom who first got into Bitcoin through an ETF and that's a, uh, you know, she doesn't even know what keys are. Uh, she didn't know what keys were at that point. And that was fine. Right. That was the most convenient way 
for her to onboard into Bitcoin, but it's also the convenience of that means it's less secure. Means if that ETF holding the Bitcoin gets hacked, her Bitcoin's gone. If uh, the trading platform that she used to buy that share uh, through uh, traditional legacy financial rails has a problem, or if the government doesn't want her to take to cash out of those shares, then there's that's a security risk, right? Privacy. Everyone, everyone at the bank knows that she owns that. You know, so I think. I think really just thinking the easier something is, the less secure and private it's going to be long-term. And everyone has a choice to make based on how much of their wealth is getting stored and the risk that they perceive uh, with that. Like if someone has no intention of taking responsibility, they're inevitably choosing to adopt more risk and less privacy and less security. And that for them might be fine. But I think people need to be aware of the trade-offs to make an educated choice. Um, Let's talk about hot versus cold wallets. So Hot wallets are used to describe wallets that are connected to the internet. So these are obviously more convenient, but they're also more vulnerable because they have uh, a surface that makes them open to online attacks. Whereas a cold wallet is not connected to the internet. So it's definitely less convenient because you have to know more about these wallets in order to do them right. Um, but they're much more secure, right? No one, you're essentially eliminating the entire attack vector uh, of uh, the digital attack vector, right? No, cybersecurity um, becomes not an issue if your if your keys are not interacting with the internet on a regular basis. Um, has hot and cold been something in your vocab that you think of or that people are asking questions about? Yeah, I guess I would I say cold wallet a lot. I I still don't utilize hot, um, but I do like the terms. I think that um, you explain them very well. It's like a hot wallet is where your private keys. Again, you know, we're all talking about how to hold your keys safely. A hot wallet is going to hold your private keys in online servers. So they're going to be online and a cold wallet will be offline. The keys will be offline. So essentially you think about it as like you're unplugging from the system, the internet, the electric, the electrical grid. So um, when you do that, um, your, your keys are much more safe and it makes sense to me. Um, You know, I I like the terminology and, uh, and I, I use both. I have a hot wallet and I have uh, some cold wallets. Cool. Let's talk about software hardware because I think this is uh, another kind of distinction that's important to make. Um, and I'm sure, you know, if we, if we don't look back in six months and listen to this and spot some errors in our thinking, then we're probably not learning. Um, we're probably not learning at a fast speed. So I think, you know, anyone who's listening to this, please in the YouTube comments or even at the STOA, uh, let us know if we're getting something wrong, we're going to get things wrong and that's okay. From my understanding, all wallets have a software component. Uh, and hardware wallets are software components that also have a physical device attached to them. And the cool thing about a hardware wallet is that it allows you to sign transactions, even if the computer you're using isn't completely secure. Um, and it kind of gives an added layer of protection from malware and cyber attacks because <clears throat> you're not actually divulging your keys uh, on the internet. You're signing using a device that is protected from your online um, sort of component um, the software component of that wallet. And, you know, I've used Trezor, uh, as a hardware wallet. Now I use the Blockstream Jade. And I think at the end, we'll just recommend like what wallets are we using right now and why, um, so that people have some suggestions to kind of look into. But, you know, once again, you have to really buckle down on the fact that your Bitcoin never resides in a specific place. It's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. What you do have is the private keys, um, And so you can either store those private keys in a software element, which would be like an app that you download, um, or you can store it in a hardware element, which is like a little computer chip that has 
software, ideally open source software, but is not connected to the internet, is separated by a layer of obfuscation where the things you're doing on that device physically are not um, transparent to the device you're using that's connected to the internet. How do you describe hardware wallets to people? Because I recommend them frequently and sometimes it's tough. You know, you can know something and have trouble describing it. And this is like, you know, like to fly a helicopter, you need a certain subset of information to teach someone how to fly a helicopter. It's way fucking harder. And so I think you and I are sort of still working on mastering how we explain these things to people um, that have no background context and no understanding of Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, how do you describe a hardware wallet? And is there a favorite that you uh, like to use? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I think that you did a really uh, great job explaining the two differences between software and hardware wallet, because obviously they're both going to contain software. And so like definitions are going to be a little bit convoluted, but I think it really makes sense in terms of how I explain a hardware wallet is, is simply that as soon as I unplug this piece of hardware off of my computer, you know, to, to, I'm talking to my friend, you know, as soon as I take, take this hardware wallet out of my computer, it can't be touched. And it's, it's perfectly safe in this little box. Um, now that comes with a lot of uh, different risks, but I think that explaining it, it's been easy to me to explain it as something that's just completely separate from your computer. It's separate from the internet. And so in that sense, it does remove that, 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 um, that attack vector. Yeah. That yeah. vulnerability of like having your data online or having, you know, passwords online. And I think I, uh, I, I, that's just like, kind of reminds me of this, um, not really a quote, but just some like tips that somebody was saying is like, just, just think that all of your usernames and passwords will eventually get leaked. So if, if you're thinking like that, then you're gonna probably be doing some more best, you know, best practices in terms of securing, um, you know, anything that you consider valuable. And so having a hardware wallet is going to be a good way to have peace of mind to, to, you know, to securely manage Bitcoin yourself, but it is fun, you know, like talking about hardware wallets and, and just trying to like rip out a definition myself. It's, it's, uh, it's a fun exercise. And I think that, um, you know, more people learning about, uh, hardware wallets, like, like you and myself and, uh, and in defining them and sharing them with others is going to really, um, spread the word, spread the word. But, you know, I, I personally, um, in terms of hardware wallets, I, I too use uh, Trezor and I also use a ledger and um, I've had good experiences with both of those. Um, and uh, like Nick said, you know, I would love to go into more details about all of the, um, you know, UI and, and things like that, but that'll be on a, on a, a future episode. Um, but yeah, like, you know, in, in, uh, in any other term, like I think hardware wallets just should be utilized um, by anyone who is serious about learning about Bitcoin and serious about holding their, their wealth in Bitcoin. One practice that I um, am beginning to, to start is if I do meet somebody or if I'm talking to one of my friends who is interested in Bitcoin or sees the value in taking their Bitcoin off of an exchange, then I will just give them a wallet. I have like a couple, I, I always like to have a few extra at the house that are just empty. And I just say like, here, like take this and you know we can open it up or play around with it. Um, 
and learn about it. But I have noticed that it does, um, it, it, it does, you know, make people feel more, more comfortable and secure. And so um, that's a cool practice that, that I've been doing uh, most recently. Yeah. I stockpile a bunch of Trezor ones, <laughs> the cheaper Trezor wallet, um, because part of me has a fear that they will, they'll, they'll have supply chain <laughs> issues at some point. So I have like a little stock of them and yeah. I, I essentially give them to family. They just pay me whatever I paid Amazon to buy them. And I think the Trezor one is like 75 bucks Canadian delivered. Um, which is fairly cheap. And just the exercise of taking an hour and going through and opening this thing up and figuring out how it works. You know, the coolest thing about Trezors is like, you have a little device, there's a keypad on there, there's a pin to get in. So your first line of defense is you need the actual device. So if someone doesn't have that device, they don't have access to your keys. Your second layer of defense is a pin to be able to get into the device and access the private keys. And the cool thing about a Trezor is that you plug it into your computer. On the computer, will show a three by three grid with little dots you see no numbers on your device. You see the numbers. So if someone, where's the, where, why is that important? If someone had hacked into your computer and was able to essentially see everything you were doing, all they would see is a grid with dots. They might see which dots you click, but every time you open your treasure up, the, the numbers are in different places. And so it completely obfuscates your um, pin to get in there. Cause that's like your second layer of defense to be able to access all the private keys. And I think something that's important to mention is that all wallets, which are essentially creating a string of random words and num or letters and numbers that only you know, uh, can be backed up with a seed phrase. And so they're basically like 24 words is your backup. If that hardware wallet gets lost, if you think someone uh, got access to it, you can back up that wallet by essentially plugging in 24 words. You can recover everything that was in that wallet. If the actual piece of hardware is lost, you can also do this with software wallets. If you think it's been compromised or the device that software wallet was on is lost. And I think something that's really important, you know, I had a friend that had a Trezor one and he stored the hardware wallet and his recovery seed and his pin in the same container. I'm like, dude, that makes no sense, right? If someone gets that, they have everything they need. And so I think it's important to say that ideally the layers of protection you should develop are keep your hardware wallet in one, in one place somewhere safe, keep your recovery seed in a different place geographically, right? I would say even like, you know, worst case scenario, what if your house breaks down? You don't want both those things being in the same spot and then keep your pin somewhere different so that if someone grabs your hardware wallet, they don't have the recovery seed or the pin that's useless. You, you buy another hardware wallet, you recover it. That one essentially is, is useless. Um, your pin uh, is you don't want people to know it necessarily, but if they have your pin, but they don't have your hardware wallet, nothing happens. The big one is your recovery seat. That's the one that you got to be careful because someone has that they can essentially take everything. Um, and so three points with the hardware wallet with a software wallet, there's two, right? There's usually a pin to get in, uh, and the device that, uh, I guess you're using the software wallet on, uh, and your recovery seat. So I think it's important to geographically disperse the items that are required to access your keys. And I think that's part of your strategy, right? If you have a hundred bucks in Bitcoin on a hot wallet on your phone or a mobile, uh, on a mobile device, probably not that important to have a really deep security strategy, but at minimum, you should probably keep your recovery seat on a different device or a different location. And so it can be, it can be overwhelming at the start. And if it's, if you're getting overwhelmed and it's causing you to withdraw and not go into this, you probably went too hard too early. And the best thing to do is just put a couple bucks on a software wallet on your phone, um, custodial or non-custodial. If it's a small amount, just start playing with it, start interacting with it. And this whole thing is that 
as more of your wealth is in Bitcoin, you require more of your time to be spent on how to, on understanding how to secure this, right? It's all about responsibility. If you are required to take the responsibility for your wealth, the more wealth you have, the more time you have to devote to learning how to take responsibility. Um, and some people will lose Bitcoin and that's like burning your hand on the stove, right? That's what teaches you the stove is hot. You shouldn't do that, right? If you lose some Bitcoin, it's like, well, I didn't have a good enough understanding of how to take custody of my own keys. So I'm going to fix that by learning how to do better. Um, and so, yeah, that's software, hardware, um, software. You'll, yeah, I, I don't think we have to explain that further, but maybe the next one to go on to is mobile and desktop. And I think this is pretty straightforward, but there's probably some nuggets to put in there. Um, mobile wallets on a mobile device. Usually you're going to have less funds on a mobile wallet. It's more convenient because it's portable. And then on a desktop wallet, you have less convenience, but typically desktop wallets will offer a broader spectrum of privacy and security features. And typically you'd use a desktop wallet for like mid to deep Bitcoin storage um, in terms of where that fits in your strategy. What are your, uh, any points to chat about in terms of mobile and desktop? Yeah, um, I mean, you pretty much covered it. I personally um, haven't really dug too much into mobile or like... Uh, I guess desktop wallets. I know some, like for instance, like uh, Trezor and Ledger have um, desktop platforms, um, and then Ledger also has a mobile platform. But then there are certain um, wallets and, and companies that are specifically desktop only, um, and those I really haven't gotten into. But I do know, like I mean, you know, it might be obvious, but I learned this from first person, you know, just, just using it myself is that, you know, like you said, a, a desktop wallet is going to typically have a little bit more capabilities and usage. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not, not, not much else really anything to say about that, Nick. I mean, uh, one thing that I did want to mention is, uh, is, you know, you were talking about like single points of failure with wallets and I did just want to mention that because I think that that's a really important term that I never really uh, heard before Bitcoin. And um, I think that, yeah, if, if everybody who everybody should learn that a single point of failure is is uh, is important to understand. And, and uh, it's funny because I'll, I'll just admit it right now that I was one of those guys who had um, my everything in one box. I was too. And uh, I honestly, too. I had like nightmares. Like sometimes I would, I would just think about it and, you know, your mind can, uh, can run, you know, run you wild. But I think that again, you know, having best practices in place, um, eliminating single points of, of uh, failure. And then also uh, getting to know all the different types of wallets, like Nick and I were talking about, like, I, I would love to learn more about, um, desktop specific wallets and uh and things like that because it's a it's a space that's always constantly changing and um in terms of security and privacy that's also changing it's a it's a very like fluid um environment and uh yeah those are my thoughts on on mobile and desktop yeah and i mean mobile a desktop wallet is automatically more secure because the assumption is like unless you're bringing your computer everywhere with you and people can steal it, like people have to usually get into your house to get your computer. So there's already like an extra security layer. And I think it really all, it's all about risk minimization, right? You talk about points of failure. Ideally, you don't have a single point of failure where if that was compromised, everything's compromised. Um, 
And it requires you to kind of think through scenarios. And like you said, your mind can wander and get taken away through all the overwhelming scenarios. But I think every time I get a bit of anxiety that maybe my security is not as good now that maybe there's more value held in my Bitcoin. Uh, I always cure that anxiety through deeper understanding of, of really knowing like, am I doing everything I can based on this amount of wealth to make sure that no one can steal it uh, from one single place? Um, no one can steal it by hacking me. You know, I think it, there, it becomes, the more you understand, the clearer it becomes and the better understanding you get of like, okay, this is the strategy I need right now. And when I get up to this threshold, I'm going to feel better when I have a deeper strategy, a more, uh, a more robust cold storage strategy. And, you know, I think let's talk about, I, I really like to sequence this into like four layers for people to keep it simple. And these are layers that people typically understand from the current fiat world. So the four layers to talk about are your wallet, which is like literally the wallet you hold in your pocket, usually a mobile wallet. There's a pin or maybe face ID to get into it. Small amounts of Bitcoin. That's if you want to spend money, right? When at a, at a point in time, we will be using Bitcoin as a daily spending uh, monetary unit. If you go to El Salvador, you can literally buy a McDonald's burger or Starbucks coffee um, or a pupusa from a street vendor with Bitcoin. And so having a mobile wallet in your pocket, just like you had a mobile, uh, like a physical wallet in your pocket with your cash is helpful. So that's layer one. Layer two is your checking account. And most people are familiar with this terminology because it's kind of the framework in place right now. This might be a hardware or a desktop wallet with a bit more security, right? So you have a larger amount of Bitcoin in there. It's more secure, um, but it's still like, you know, maybe that's like monthly spending. So your physical wallet or your mobile wallet will be like a daily spend. Your checking account will be like a monthly spend, which you can send money from your monthly spend to your daily spend wallet. Your savings account would be like a more robust cold storage strategy. So it's more accessible. Um, than like a vault, which is like deep, deep storage, but it's more protected and harder to access than your checkings account. And then your deepest one, uh, your coldest storage would be like your vault, right? Which is like really hard to access, very inconvenient. You can't access the funds like right away out of your pocket, but it's also much more secure. Um, and, you know, maybe something to mention there is this whole notion that there's a way of developing, you know, offline cold storage, um, with redundancy built in. And in the next one, we can talk about what even single signature and multi-signature means at a high level, because I think that's important. But when it comes to securing a private seed, um, like your actual recovery seed, that's a very important piece, right? And so I've gotten to the point where I'm starting to experiment with different devices, like a uh, uh, HODL Swiss is one device, uh, CryptoTag is another, where you're actually stamping codifying the words into like a binary code, like a four number code and stamping that into metal items that even if your house burnt down, this would survive. Uh, you can bury it underground and it won't rust. You know, like, like literally you can go pretty deep with this and you probably don't need to go crazy, right? The last thing you want to do is create a treasure hunt that you can't even solve. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think this notion that like, it's very uncommon for people's houses to burn down, but it does happen. And you wouldn't want everything to be lost if your house burned down. And so, you know, even um, putting your recovery seed on a physical uh, item, like a physical uh, uh, piece that is immune to fire, is immune to rusting away, is weather resistant, will literally last a thousand years because you've stamped the letters. And that's another layer, probably not relevant right now, but I think the wallet, checking account, savings account, and vault analogy 
gives like a high level zoomed out view of a security um, um, strategy, I guess, like a key management strategy that I think people can draw a parallel to because they already understand those terms from the fiat world and sort of where they fit in and how much wealth should be allocated to each one. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And do you use a similar structure yourself? If not, what kind of structure are you using right now uh, for, your, for, uh, for managing your keys and like using your Bitcoin? Yeah, that was a really good framework uh, that I haven't heard of before, Nick. And, and it's actually like pretty similar to the framework that the Bitcoin rabbi posted on Twitter. And I'll just kind of rattle that off real quick and then talk about my own personal strategy um, just because it's so relevant right now. But and again, this is just a framework, too, but um, it's a really good way to constantly be thinking about your wealth and how you're storing it and some tips for storage. Um, less, you know, so if you're storing less than a month's salary, it would, it would be, uh, oh, maybe okay to have it in a custodial or a lightning, um, or a mobile device. If it was up to six months salary, um, think maybe mobile device, maybe paper, maybe hardware, six to 12 months, hardware, paper, pa hardware, paper, and metal backup. And then, you know, depending on how much wealth you're storing, we can kind of go into the details of multi-signature. And, and like you said, you know, how, how in depth of a treasure hunt do you want to create for yourself to, to access your Bitcoin? But me personally, um, I do like to have a little bit of Bitcoin on a mobile wallet. I hold it on my cash app wallet, um, which I think is very useful if I was going to send like 5,000 sats to support a podcast or send a couple sats over to my buddy who's just learning about Bitcoin. That's typically what I'm going to be using. So it's like my day to day. It's like my wallet. You know, like you said, it's that that daily thing that I'm going to be using. And then if I was going to be storing anything um, that's that's long term, like any savings for me um, that I just don't want to think about and want to um, want to just put away for long term, then that's going to be in my hardware and uh, my hardware wallets. And again, you know, I'm still working on, on my own personal best practices. And, you know, I have like these idealized um, goals of how I would like to, to um, manage my Bitcoin and, and I'm still learning and it's, it's always a learning process. And that's kind of the fun thing that, um, that, that it's all about. Like you said, Nick, um, a lot of times, you know, you could like me, I can feel a little bit overwhelmed and, um, that's when you maybe need to take a step back or, and, and maybe dive a little bit more into the, to learning. And, and I always, uh, always seem to, to come out like with a positive and optimistic outlook and feeling even better. Um, anytime that, that I'm uh, feeling confused or burnt out or anything like that. But I think, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of holding in, in a hot hot wallet or a software wallet or a mobile wallet, I think it's it's um, you know how are you going to be using your Bitcoin? How are you going to be storing it? And and uh, and just just think best practices. Think about um, you know what what you want to do for yourself and and uh, you know keep a, a a low time preference. You know and don't 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 think about uh, things happening too fast, you know, make sure that you're thinking in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I think the cool thing is that the more wealth you accumulate in Bitcoin, uh, typically the more time you have available, you have a less pressure to spend your time doing things that aren't important. And the more wealth you have, the more importance gets placed on the Bitcoin you have. And typically the more time availability you have as your wealth increases to actually learn how to secure that wealth. So it's kind of like a, a nice um, closed loop where it's like, as my amount of 
as the value of my Bitcoin increases, I have less pressure to spend my time doing things that I don't need, don't maybe don't want to do to earn money because my money's uh, accumulating and purchasing power. Therefore, I have more time to dedicate to making sure I can secure that money um, and that I don't have any anxiety over um, potentially something happening to that to that wealth. So, yeah, and I think the one caveat I would say about the rabbi um, kind of framework he delivered is like, be careful with paper wallets. They're very tricky. I feel like paper, like I use paper wallet right at the start and they're really, really finicky and they're easy to fuck up. Like it's just the reality of it, right? Like even the fact that ink on paper will uh, fade over time. And if that fades and you can't recover it, uh, you, you might be in big trouble. And so I think just being really cautious with paper wallets and just, yeah, learning, learning and making sure that you have a good understanding of whether, and it, your security strategy, your wallet strategy is constantly dynamic because the, the purchasing power and the value of Bitcoin is constantly changing. And so you have to adapt as time goes on. And it really is like how much, how secure do you feel that you're using an appropriate strategy based on the amount of wealth you have. Um, let's talk about key management real quickly. Um, we'll keep it simple, but like I said, you need to improve your understanding as the amount of value you're accumulating in Bitcoin increases. And I think a really important thing to note here is that 100% security is not good because that means not even you can access your Bitcoin. And I think it's easy. Um, I think it can be a trap to fall into where it's like, okay, I have all this purchasing power on Bitcoin. I have a lot of wealth. I need to secure this extremely well. So you kind of like, and I went through this phase where I almost did this myself. I did such an in-depth rabbit hole where it's like, oh, it'd be like impossible for someone to steal this. It's like, well, shit, am I even going to be able to remember how to access it? And so I think always keeping it as simple as possible um, is, I, I think is that simplicity and elegance. I think it's Casa that said the simple means secure. So if you go too complicated, no one might be able to find it, but you might not be able to find it yourself. So beware of 100% security. Uh, it's not a good thing. You need to be able to access it when you need it. Um, and let's talk about single SIG versus multi-SIG. So multi-SIG is something that people will might hear floating around. Really all that means is like how many signatures, so how many private keys are required to sign off on a transaction. And the concept with multi-SIG is that if only a signal, single signature is needed, it's a single point of failure. If you need multiple signatures and those signatures are stored in multiple areas or in multiple devices, you reduce um, the point of failure, right? You're distributing um, the, the points of failure so that now it's protected by two layers of security instead of just one. And uh, my favorite multi-sig wallet right now, even for someone who's using it at a basic level, is the Blockstream Jade, which ties into the green wallet, which is a, the green wallet is a mobile hot wallet. The Jade is a cold hardware wallet. You require a signature from both your mobile device and from the Jade um, itself, which is like this little tiny computer chip in order for a transaction to go through. And so multi-sig is becoming much easier to use now. I think like a couple of years ago, um, I'd heard about multi-sig. I tried to do a multi-sig setup and I was like, this is, I just, I kind of gave up because I was like, this is getting more complex. And I wasn't scared that I wouldn't be able to do it. Said I would do it wrong and then fuck it up. Um, but yeah, I think, um, in terms of key management, multi-sig more relevant when you have more wealth in your Bitcoin, but becoming easier and easier to use, even as like entry-level stuff, uh, with companies like blockstream creating great products. Um, in terms of features, you know, like I think there's almost like two broad categories. When I look at features, um, privacy and security, 
And when I think of privacy, I think of something like a coin join or running Tor, uh, a Tor browser or using a VPN. And we'll go through all these when we get deeper into wallets. I don't think we have to do it necessarily now. Um, and when we look at security, that's when you're looking at like single SIG versus multi-SIG. Um, and, you know, like in terms of like the depth of strategy that you're using, but in terms of like privacy and security, is there anything that comes to mind worth mentioning in terms of features or is there any wallets you use that optimize for privacy or security, or are you just kind of <clears throat> still on the learning path? Yeah, I'm definitely still on the learning path. There's a lot of terminology that I like to learn more about, like multi-sig um, and certain things like coin join and, and, and different privacy and security features. But again, it's, uh, it's pretty deep. And I personally don't use multi-sig. And um, you know, I'm still learning about a lot of these uh, privacy features, like I said. But um, one, of the, one of the one things that I did want to mention um, that I have read before and I continue to read. It's just a couple tips from CASA um, on, on key management. And I think that's important um, for anybody like including myself who's, who's still learning how to properly and safely and securely um, store their keys. And, and so these are just a couple points. The first one is to take control. And so the simple, the simple learning lesson from that is not your keys, not your coins. And so if you don't hold your keys, they're not your coins. Um, essentially, the, the second tip is protect yourself. So have good, high, uh, I like this, practice strong cyber hygiene. Have good hygiene online. And uh, this is the quote where I got it. Assume all your usernames and passwords will get leaked. And I think that that's a really great idea is, um, you know, hopefully not. But if you're practicing things like that, um, if you're protecting yourself, then, then that's a good thing to think about. And the third point is don't get fished. So, you know, I mean, this, this might be obvious to a lot of people. Um, it is to me, but, you know, I hear about a lot of people who type their seed phrase online or type it into a computer. Um, somebody would, you know, install malware and, and have their Bitcoin stolen. So a couple of the last points are, you know, don't get fished. Don't install malware. Don't create technical weaknesses for yourself. And so how like do you Nick find said, malware, because I don't think anyone goes intentionally installs malware, but how might that? Yeah, that's a good uh, point, actually. Hide itself. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think malware can hide itself uh, very easily. Something that I like to do, like browser extensions. Like, so if you have like Chrome or any type of browser, if you're adding, if you're someone who likes to add a lot of extensions on that, then I would, I would definitely be careful about those types of things. Um, Maybe that means using a dedicated laptop for your Bitcoin. Like you can buy a laptop for 200 bucks, a, a laptop that uses a rudimentary version of Windows. Maybe you put Ubuntu on it. It's like open source software. And that's your dedicated $200, super basic uh, Bitcoin laptop, that's where you do your Bitcoin stuff. And you're not going to install all these browser extensions. You're not going to do any fancy stuff. Maybe that laptop's not even connected to the internet most of the time. Right. And I think, I think there might be value to that. Um, having a dedicated setup where it's like, you know, that's just for Bitcoin. It's a very simple open source laptop. There's nothing fancy. Um, but it does the job of making sure that I'm not uh, I know I'm not going to install anything that I'm not intentionally installing, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that's part of cyber hygiene, maybe more relevant when you get deeper into this, but inevitably, if you're starting with Bitcoin, you will have to get deeper eventually in order to keep custody of those coins. Cause they're going to get a lot more valuable as time goes yeah. on. 
Yeah, and exactly. And really, it just all comes back to you. So just really, uh, you know, be mindful of yourself and how you're feeling. And if you want to up your security or up your privacy, then learn, you know, then jump into it and learn about it and, and find a way to, to make yourself feel more comfortable about that. But I think that's, those are all the points that I really wanted to make was, um, you know, there are certain important things like your seed and your passphrase and, and things like that, that you just should not be sharing online. And, um, and those are a couple of good tips from Casa as far as, as key management. But, um, but yeah, Nick, I mean, really it's, it's exciting for me because, uh, you know, as, as someone who's newer into Bitcoin and, and, you know, only a year into my journey, I think that, um, and, and honestly, it's, it's, it's surprising to me that I still haven't, you know, gotten to the point of learning more about multi-sig and things like that. But I, I think it really comes with time. And um, the, the exciting thing for me in the future about Bitcoin is that a lot of these features are becoming a lot more user-friendly for people like me who um, are not software devs and don't know how to write code. Yeah. Yeah. It's becoming way more intuitive. Like it's significant. And, you know, part of the reason for the stow is like, okay, if you and I have more time or want to devote more time to understanding this, well, let's do the things, experiment, try these things out, spend time learning, and then essentially distill out the 15% of what we've learned to the most relevant things for people that they can like give people the cheat codes to all the shit that we're trying, that we're learning. And, you know, it's kind of nice to have a friend who's a Bitcoiner who's maybe a little bit further ahead than you because then you have someone to learn from. And hopefully we can kind of be that person or those people for those who are new to this and coming in, you know, School of Coin is really for complete newbies that are just starting out, wanting an on-ramp to learn about it. Um, you know, I so even just sharing some of the wallets that I've used so that if anyone wants to experiment, they can. Um, I use, I'm currently using Moon. Uh, Moon Wallet, which is a non-custodial, now that people kind of know these terms, it's a non-custodial Bitcoin and Lightning uh, hot mobile wallet that I have on my phone. I also have Blockstream Green on there. And I think it's kind of cool. I have a lot of different wallets that I experiment with, you know, Bread, Wallet of Satoshi, because I want to see what all the different UIs are. And clearly you have to be interested in this to do that. But it's kind of nice to see how do all these different um, wallets uh, allow you to back up your uh, allow you to do your recovery how does the user interface look how simple are they how complex are they how do, do they allow you to see transactions do they, do they allow you to choose your fees um so there's a lot of different features but at the end of the day getting starting with a hot mobile wallet is typically a good start so those are the ones i'm using for my hot wallet uh i use wasabi for like a higher privacy desktop wallet wasabi is a really awesome um like we have no agreement or partnership with any wallet companies. And the hope is by keeping the STOA a community funded platform, we never have anything that takes away our objectivity so that we can literally just be completely honest. We're not worried about pissing off a sponsor or anything like that or being biased. But Wasabi is an open source, non-custodial, privacy-focused Bitcoin wallet for desktop. Uh, it offers things like coins join, uh, like they have a coin join, which uh, we'll talk about in a later episode, but they also do the include the Tor browser, which is just all these cool privacy features that are a little bit more in depth compared to what the average person needs if they're just getting started. Um, but is also like super powerful and becoming way more user-friendly. Um, so that's my desktop wallet. I use Trezor, uh, the Trezor one and the Blockstream Jade as my hardware wallets. And the Blockstream Jade is my very first multi-sig product and it's insanely intuitive. So I would recommend if you want to get started with a multi-sig, buy a little Blockstream Jade hardware wallet it pairs up with Green Wallet, which is a mobile wallet. Um, and it, it's just a really awesome device. 
Uh, and then I use Cypher Wheel and CryptoKey as um, like physical key backups that I kind of experiment with. And I, I really like experimenting with these products because they're very well made. Like Cypher Wheel is like this crazy stainless steel wheel that you put little chips in and like, it's really cool. I, I, I nerd out on the hardware stuff. Um, and then I'm currently, the, the project that I'm working on right now is like my vault setup, which is uh, a Yeti cold protocol, which is a three of seven multi-sig where the private keys are never, ever on an internet connected device. And it's like, I've been in this for eight years and I'm, this is like pushing the boundaries of my technical understanding and willingness to commit a shitload of time to learn how to do this. If you're interested, it's yeticold.com. It's an open source protocol by like actual privacy and security, like researchers, like these are the, these are the dudes that are really deep into this. Um, and so, you know, there's a big spectrum. And like you said, Eddie, I think start small, start simple, build a, a routine of constantly expanding your understanding. So you know what this, what the landscape is like, and you have, you're basically learning self-defense, right? Like learning physical self-defense is really important. The hope is that you never have to use it, but if you do, it's really good to have it when you need it instead of um, seeing the need and realizing that you didn't have it. Right. And so I think this really is developing your own wallet protocol, like understanding what a wallet is. It's a keychain for your private keys, taking control of your private keys, going from custodial to non-custodial and really taking responsibility for full responsibility for your wealth is a good move to make. Uh, and then as time goes on, you just learn better and better self-defense as the amount of wealth you have to defend increases. And like I mentioned before, as your wealth increases, you end up having more time to actually learn about these things. And so hopefully that was a good 101 to wallets, some of the terminology, some options or uh, different products that maybe people can check out. Uh, Eddie, is there anything you want to chat about or leave people with before we sign off on this one? Yeah, um, I would say nothing in particular. I, I think like, I think what, what I really want to get across to the, um, to everybody today and really myself is that, you know, learning about wallets and learning about Bitcoin, uh, is a really, really fun journey. I think that, you know, you should never be hard on yourself. Um, it's okay to make small little mistakes and, um, and, and that's the most important thing. Like when you're, when you're getting these wallets, I think that, one of the great pieces of advice that Nick talked about is like put a little amount of Bitcoin on there, you know, and play around, send a little bit, you know, receive a little bit and, and get to know the platform. Another great thing uh, to do is to really get to know all the different hardware wallets, you know, like Nick uses a ton. I personally, um, you know, just have one mobile wallet, I just, uh, which is Cash App. I just downloaded Moon and I'm still like really getting comfortable with it, like in the Lightning Network, which is totally fascinating to me. And then personally, in terms of hardware, I only use um, Trezor and, and Ledger, and, and those are my only two. But, you know, it's, it's perfectly okay to be wherever you're at um, in, in your Bitcoin journey. And, and just for, you know, the fact that, like, you're listening to this episode or you're Googling, like, Bitcoin wallets is, like, you're in the right place. And so I think that's just where I want to leave everybody with today is that, that um, you know, privacy and security are super important. In order to lock that in, we have a lot of different wallets to securely hold your Bitcoin keys. And um, those are my final words. This is an awesome episode. And if anybody has any questions, yeah, feel free to comment um, on YouTube or, or personally hit us up on Twitter. Yeah, on Twitter or even BitcoinStow at gmail.com. Um, that'll get checked once a week, but that's a good place to send questions. Maybe the last thing I'll 
mention because I, this has come up twice last week where people are, uh, friends and family are starting to reach out and say, Hey, I, I know, like, I always felt like I was too late, but now I'm realizing there's no such thing as too late because this thing constantly is just absorbing monetary energy and it's not good. It seems like it's not stopping, which I agree with. And so they're being more curious to say like, okay, I just, you know, my best advice is set something up, set it up and then forget about it. In order to set it up, you have to allocate time to make sure you do it properly. And my recommendation for setup is hardware wallet, get a mobile, uh, like, um, it's like a read only version, uh, of like, a. I think Samurai has an option where you can basically see, uh, what's in that wallet, but you cannot spend it from the mobile device. So those are like cool options, but basically I've been setting people up with set up a DCA at whatever frequency and amount you want, have that DCA go right to uh, a non-custodial hardware wallet, have that device put somewhere safe, put the pin somewhere else, put your recovery seed somewhere else. So you have three things to keep track of. You only set it up once, you can adjust the amounts or the frequencies, but that is set up, you can forget about it. And maybe once a month or once every couple of months, it obviously depends on how much you're putting in there. Um, play with it, get a, get a non-custodial hot wallet on your phone, send a, send five bucks from that cold storage device to the hot wallet, play around with it, send a transaction to somewhere or someone even better gift a couple bucks, like 5,000 sats is like what, 250? Gift that to someone that has no idea what Bitcoin is, get them to download Moon Wallet and do that. Um, and just know that like things are on autopilot, you have a good initial security setup until you get over whatever amount you feel comfortable, like the amount, the amount threshold of money that determines whether you should increase your security protocol is 100% subjective, right? <laughs> Someone with $5,000 might think I don't need anything more because I have a million dollars in my bank, in my fiat bank account, which is melting away PS. Um, <laughs> and you know, someone with not very much money, uh, $200 in Bitcoin might be a lot for them to be like, this is a really important amount. So I have to build up my security protocol. And I think everyone has to make that decision, but at the get go, set up a DCA, get a good hardware wallet to start with. I think the blockstream Jade is really cool because it's super intuitive and easy to understand put the hardware device, your recovery seed and your pin in different places and know that you can literally spend no energy on anything after that, after that initial setup, apart from once in a while doing a transaction to make sure you're staying literate with how to do this without messing things up. And so it doesn't have to be super complex and crazy, but as the amount of, as the percentage of your wealth increases, that's held in Bitcoin, you need to take more and more responsibility, learn more, understand more, and uh, hopefully the STOA and Eddie and I can be a good resource for that as you're moving forward. So thank you all for listening. Uh, we appreciate you giving your attention to us. We hope this episode was valuable in terms of defining some terms. Um, I think a really good, I have a, a notebook. I have a bunch of kind of sequential notebooks, but I like taking physical notes. So, you know, take some notes after each episode that you listen to. Even if you never read the notes again, I think for me, at least writing something down hits like control save in my brain, makes something more uh, memorable long-term. And uh, we hope that School of Corn episodes are giving you some good um, material to take notes from for yourself and kind of extracting what's relevant for you. So thanks for dropping by the STOA. If you enjoy the content, you can support the project by heading to bitcoinstoa.com and sending some sats to the QR code there. Maybe that's a good way to mess around with your uh, mobile hot wallet. Um, and, uh, yeah, wishing you all a wonderful rest of your day and a beautiful learning journey in the world of wallets and Bitcoin. 
and ciao for now.